1: Hey everyone, this is Chris Grosso with the Indie Spirituals Podcast on the MindPod Network. My guest today is the one, the only, a Mr. Jeff Brown. Jeff, thanks for being with us today. <laughs> I would... My pleasure, Chris. Well, thanks. Um, yeah. I'm going to read your bio, Jeff, quickly. And, and for, for the audience, this is a little bit of an older bio. I grabbed it off Jeff's website, but we're going to have a new bio posted. But I think this still does a pretty good job of letting you know a bit about Jeff before we get going on things um born in toronto canada my neighbor uh jeff brown did all the things he was supposed to do to become successful in the eyes of the world he was on the dean's honor list as an undergraduate he won the law and medicine prize in law school he apprenticed with top criminal lawyer eddie greenspan it had been brown's lifelong dream to practice criminal law and search for the truth in the courtroom But then, on the verge of opening a law practice, he heard a little voice inside telling him to stop, just stop. With great difficulty, he honored this voice and began a heartfelt quest for the truth that lived within him. Although he didn't realize it at the time, Brown was actually questing for his innate image, the essential being that he came into this lifetime to embody. He was searching for his authentic face. As part of his journey, Brown surrendered to his confusion and explored many possible paths. He studied bioenergetics and did session work with co-founder Alexander Lowen. He practiced as a body-centered psychotherapist. He completed a master's in psychology at Saybrook Graduate School in San Francisco and co-founded the Open Heart Gang, a benevolent gang with a heartfelt intention. He started his own business and became a successful entrepreneur. The most important thing Brown did, however, was the inner work. By going inside and connecting his spirituality with his emotional life, he learned essential lessons. By learning to surrender to the school of hard knocks, or the school of life, he found his authentic face and embraced the call to write soul shaping. Although he resisted it at first, he soon realized that honoring the call was his best defense against sleeplessness. If he wrote, he slept. If he didn't, he lay awake all night. This is the nature of a calling. I love that bio, Jeff. I know it's like, it's not quite the traditional look at all these accomplishments, but I really love that one. So I'm glad we uh, we used it.
2: Um, it's nice to hear it. It brings me back to the beginning of this, bringing my voice into the world journey, you know, and yeah, uh, yeah it's nice.
1: Well, so speaking of going back to the beginning, why not start, you know, let's let's go a little ways back and. As it says in your bio, you know, you found yourself on the verge of opening a law practice and you heard this voice telling you to stop. Um, And and obviously law and being a lawyer was very important to you. So, I mean, it must have been quite an experience. I'd love to to have you elaborate on that.
2: You know, I used to see in Canada there, there, he just passed away last year, but Eddie Greenspan was kind of our famous televised uh, criminal trial lawyer Mm. kind of celebrity character and I would see him on television as an adolescent, and I used to say, "I know that man. I I can feel that man. I'm going to work with that man one day." And I was a very pragmatic, feisty warrior kid. I I was hard, certainly not esoteric, and um, but I felt it to be true. I really, I really got where he was moving from, and his focus on the presumption of innocence, or what I now call the presumption of essence, but really the same thing in many ways, and. Um, And then I just got to work trying to make it happen uh, so that I could apprentice or article with him. I went to law school, University of Toronto. and, And, you know, throughout that process, I mean, it wasn't like I was in law school, um, i knew that i had to work in trial law but i didn't care for law school and while i would be in law school writing in class i would find myself drifting and writing on the sidebar of my uh... notebook you are not who you appear to be you are not who you appear to be so i was always aware holding some witness observer consciousness even from an early age that there was this adaptation or disguise and then there was this other being living inside of me um, and trial law was complicated because it really was true to path and at the same time not the ultimate path. So much more complicated. It wasn't just a guy who didn't belong in law. It was a guy who knew he had to do some work and knew he had to work with Eddie. So then eventually through all kinds of crazy serendipitous circumstances, I ended up with him. We did a very major murder trial in, in Canada and in Brampton for eight months. Uh, that I basically directed Cross, wrote Jury Address, I was completely lost in it and felt completely at home in the courtroom. It was like I had been there forever, was destined to be there forever, would walk down the hallway with Eddie and it was like, it was like encoded in me that this moment in time, was like a deja vu and it was like what deja vu was for me, was some uh, way of telling me that I had walked into the path that I was here to walk. It was so absolutely right. And then after the trial, we won the trial and summer was off and I had to come back to Bard Mission course, this part of me inside kept saying, and I had named her little Missy because I had identified my habitual consciousness as a warrior consciousness, the warrior. And I called this part of me, little Missy, uh, the, the warrior patronized that part of me, that esoteric part of me in that way. And little Missy's just chirped up during bar Mission course and said, you're not doing this. Mm. And, uh, and I had a spiritual emergency. I couldn't sleep. I was agitated. I was frustrated, like I was about to walk down the false a false path. And I was going to stay in that path with my workaholic nature for forty years and then drop dead in a courtroom. That was really my vision of what was going to happen to me. And uh, a number of guys we were gathering together to sign a lease for an office. Other people who were graduating from the course, and I was primed and ready to go. I had Eddie's support. I had had an amazing experience. I was not afraid of any of it, and. Mm-hmm. This little voice just said no. Um, And then I just sat in those feelings, and the voice was not clear as to what direction I was here to walk, but was very clear that that path was over for me. That kind of warrior, habitual warrior consciousness, was not the direction to take in this lifetime. And then by the time I was called to the bar three or four months later, after intense disarray in my inner world, I was called, I went through the process, and then I just decided just not to sign the office lease and um, and just lay there for a long time, learning how to feel what lived below my habitual warrior consciousness. And cried. I used to go to the courtroom and sit there. I was so attached to it and thought maybe I'd find my answer there. And I would sit in the back of the courtroom and I would cry. I was just uh, I was just allowing myself to feel into who really lived below that path and and then just went on a 15-something year-long journey to figure out where I was supposed to walk in this lifetime. I had had visions of myself as a writer. I had had visions of myself studying Maslow's humanistic psychology model in my adolescence. And I always said, I'm going to do law and then psych and then I'm going to write. And it turns out that I was connected to some sacred purpose or soul scriptures or James Hillman's term, the innate image from an early age. And it was just a question of taking it seriously enough to walk towards it.
1: Wow. I, and I, I deeply honor that you, uh, you honored that calling, you know, that's no small thing. I, you know, people struggle their whole lives to, uh, to become lawyers and, and, yeah. and so to be there and have it laid out before you. Um,
2: it was the hardest thing I ever did, Chris. I, yeah. I, uh, and I didn't, I had no template for this. I mean, nobody knew the difference between a survivalist path or an authentic path. There was no language for this. I didn't know a single person who ever thought about this. Yeah. I didn't even bring this into my therapy. It was such a private process. And wow. and I love trial law. I loved it. I had so many visions of possibility for what I was going to do in a courtroom. Now there's the Gian Gimeshi case, and Marie Hennan is the lawyer, and she yes. was with Eddie's office. And, and I, I'm so agitated by this case and how I want to, approach the case and how I would have even prosecuted this case. So this call is still alive in me. It's just some other thing was slightly more pressing on the path. And, um, yeah.
1: Well, so, okay. So as you're you're learning to feel your feelings and, and, you know, kind of connect with that deeper part of yourself, walk me through that a little bit because... That that's the beginning, so to speak. Of you, you said about a fifteen year journey. Um, so let's talk a little bit about that journey, and dare we say, process of awakening, or you know, insert whatever spiritual lingo you'd like. But let, let's talk a little bit about that part of your journey. Um,
2: you know, I think that uh, at the beginning, I saw uh, my emotional process and my whatever my calling was, and whatever spirituality was, as completely distinct from each other. Okay. I was a dude who was going to find his path and, or I was going to go do my therapeutic work or I was going to have some kind of a spiritual experience with Jack Kornfield or Stangroff or whatever it was that I was some version of non-duality or whatever that was. Mm-hmm. And really most of it began with just doing emotional clearing work. Mm-hmm. Um, and eventually I realized in that process that that clearing work both created space inside for my path to reveal itself. Now there was room to see it. Um, But also what I came to realize, and this was the bridge to spirituality, was that that to the extent that I could mature in my emotional field, I felt like I matured in my capacity to hold the space for, for a spiritual experience and continue to walk into one experience after another where the most profound spiritual transformation happened in the working through of my debris issues and emotional patterns from early life. and. So, I spent a lot of time in that process um, and then a lot of time in the career exploration process. And then, really, ultimately, there was a, a heartbreak experience that my book, uh, An Uncommon Bond, was really inspired by uh, with a, a particular woman that I met in 1998. And somehow, that experience, uh... profoundly um, heartbreaking experience, somehow seemed to bring all of these threads together. Um, Because in the heart of that heartbreak and in the heart of the decision as to whether I was going to go back to an armored warrior consciousness or whether I was going to allow myself to love that experience forward um, somehow, some way, um, I both found and stumbled upon my calling to write and had now the preparation and readiness to actually actualize it um, and came into the most profound experience of spirituality in that experience. I had done a lot of vertical stuff. I had done a lot of meditation work. I had done a lot of a lone wolf meditation warrior, our isolated dude in nature. All of that I was expert at. And then I had this remarkable love experience. And the experience of unity consciousness that I had in that horizontal field was so much more advanced and textured and flavorful than anything I ever experienced in my isolated process that it changed my understanding of everything to do with spirituality. Um, yeah, and then at the other end of that was the call to write and opening that door, which was another element of my path and purpose, was another portal or spiritual practice that took yeah. me to the level I think.
1: Yeah. That's that's incredible. And and I'm glad to hear you talking about the emotional work that you did, you know, the time you spent with that. I I find a lot of people I talk to, especially, well no, I was going to say especially those who are newer to the spiritual path, but even Plenty of people who've been on it for a while. I find that they tend to think meditation is just going to clean it all up. You know, I'm going to meditate or I'm going to do yoga and it'll be fine. But that's why I appreciate Ken Wilber, for example, will talk about growing up, waking up, and cleaning up, integrating the three of them. And that's just three among probably more, but those are three main areas he talks about. Because even within sects of Buddhism or obviously Christianity, are there religion, so to speak, you know, there is still racism or homophobia or sexism, things of that nature that are rampant, Be, you know, and Ken talks about and other spiritual teachers talk about, great, you're, you're having these enlightenment experiences, you're waking up to a certain extent in one area, but you're not growing up or cleaning up, you know, in the other area. So it's a very imbalanced.
2: Well, they're just having glimpses of something. Sure. It's just, it's just transcendence addiction. I mean, they're having mm-hmm. a glimpse of something, Uh, enlightenment I mean we we don't really know how to even define that sure sure. Um, and my experience is the more integrated I am and more embodied I am that not only do I have a more profoundly expansive experience of that thing called enlightenment but I can actually sustain the state for a longer period of time Mm -hmm. I I mean I guess at the heart of it is I just don't know how to distinguish my humanist from my spirituality and I think so much of the suffering that's caused in the ungrounded spiritual movement is caused because they're bifurcating those two things. We know why they're doing it. They're doing it because it's so painful to be here and they want to go somewhere where it doesn't hurt anymore. But ultimately, it ends up just causing them more suffering. My best experience personally of it, the most clarified experience, was I did an inside and opening workshop at the Governor Dummer Academy in Massachusetts. It was perfect because I was trying to get out of my head and get dumber. And Jack Cornfield was leading the meditations and Stan Groff was doing holotropic. So I'd go and sit with Jack and look around at all these caffeinated Western people, Western culture, agitated, looking around, trying to breathe and be mindful, and and then uh, and I sat in that and felt angry and annoyed, and I was completely in touch with what was in my body, and it wasn't working for me. And then Stan had us do holotropic, and by the second holotropic, I had they were all lying on my back, the two assistants. I was throwing my mother off my back. I was moving physically, somatically, breathing in a way that I had never had before. Mm-hmm. And at the end of it, I went and sat outside in front of this field of bulrushes, like I was sitting on a cushion, and I felt naturally meditative um, I didn't have a monkey mind; I felt open in my heart, my mind had calmed. I was able to do that in a two hour and a half hour holotropic, and I'm convinced that if I hadn't done that and sat on that cushion for seven days, I wouldn't have gotten anywhere near that level of stillness
1: mm. Wow so as you're saying this i'm I'm thinking of uh the really Wonderful documentary film you did, *Karmageddon*, and I'm thinking of that because I'm thinking I love you know you, you one of your books, *Ascending with Both Feet on the Ground*. I love that saying, you know, embracing your humanness. And where is the difference uh, between spirituality and humanness? And, and that resonates for me. But I'm thinking about this film, which basically explores your your relationship of being called to uh, Bhagavan Das, uh, a teacher in the lineage of Maharaji, who is a very dear um I'll say guru. I know it's a dangerous word these days, but uh a guru. Um and Bhagavan Das seems to embody kind of the the extreme on the other end of it. You know, the the I'm human, whatever, you know, and um I, I know I'm doing a right. poor job of, of describing oh, right.
2: this. Oh, that's right. But that's that's the confusion of it.
1: Right, right. So let's 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 talk a bit about First of all, let's talk about the film. It, it for for the audience, I first of all, I can't recommend checking this out enough. It's a wonderful watch um and it's available on your website, Jeff, which we'll have a link to, but also Amazon. I think you can buy or rent it through there. Uh so anyways, anyone that's interested, it's called Armageddon, Armageddon with a K before it. Um uh, but so Jeff, yeah, let's let's talk a little bit about your experience with that.
2: You know, uh, it was it, it was easy enough for me to disconnect from more detachment-based versions of spirituality. Um, I'm much more drawn to more of the Sufi way or the immersion way or all of that. Sure. But Bhagavan kind of threw me off at first um, at that stage of my process because he was more seemingly quite human mm-hmm. uh, and he was linking that humanist somehow to something mystical. Um, and he was also... He's, when I chanted with him in Kirtan, I had a profound embodiment experience. And I maybe, I think, made the assumption that so did he. Mm. And what I came to realize is that he was using Kirtan to get out of here. And I was using Kirtan to get into here. Mm. Um, but it took me a long time to separate out him, my projection onto him, from my own process and experience. Um, and, you know, there was a way in which he was very self-admitting about his humanists, which was also very disarming for me, and and created a more trustworthiness. Um, sure. But what I came to ultimately feel um, was that he was, like many people who were in the Maharaji world, because I interviewed a number of them, yeah. um, bifurcating their consciousness in the same way as the detachment people were. Sure. Um, And I didn't ultimately find any of it particularly intrinsically inclusive. A lot of them had changed their names, which I felt like in many cases was an indication they were trying to disconnect from their human identity. Um, And at this end of the day, I really felt as though all of it was just a spiritual bypass movement uh, for most of them. I got why and I got where people needed to go and I understand the suffering of humanity and God knows detachment has kept me alive at various times. Sure. But I didn't feel as though there was an integration of the emotional body material. And every time we talk about it, you know, I, I had this one question that kept coursing through the, the – the, and we didn't use it very much in the film. It didn't work with what we did with the film. But I asked a number of them, including him. I said, I don't get it. How can you claim to be an enlightened being and not be an integrity in your behavior? For me, if you're clearing the chakras and you're opening and healing every part of you, you feel naturally uh, caring towards the rest of humanity. Mm. And their answer, which was very patriarchal spirituality, I now understand, was enlightenment and morality have nothing to do with each other. Enlightenment comes to who it comes to. And what I came to realize by the end of that journey is that what they were calling enlightenment isn't what I was calling enlightenment. Mm. It wasn't inclusive. It wasn't rooted in the body. It wasn't connected to the healing and transformation of the emotional body. It was about some other vertical, separate, distinct trip that had nothing to do with expanding in the horizontal axis. Mm. And that's that's a whole other, you know, I mean, we use these terms, but we got to define them. And I think we're often talking about very different versions of what those words mean.
1: Right, right, right. Yes, I, I agree with that. I I appreciated, though, that, you know, you 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 interviewed Ram Das in the film, and he, he threw me for a loop. I didn't think that he was going to say what he said. It wasn't that he trash-talked Bhagavan Das, but he did not. He called not, it out. He, he called, called him it. out, yes. And I, I honestly was surprised, I uh, you know, because Bhagavan's the one who brought him to Maharaji in the first place.
2: And and, and is the one who said, don't ever gossip.
1: Yes, true, true. So, um, but I, I did appreciate that, that he wasn't willing to make an excuse for that kind of behavior and and he did. Comment. Well, or
2: he'd grown tired of making excuses. Okay.
1: Well, true. I had never, I've actually never heard of him speak in regards to his behavior. So I don't know, but that was the first I'd heard it uh, addressed. Um, but I was There's happy.
2: Much. I could say Chris, but none of which I will.
1: <laughs> okay. Cause just so you know that the podcast here is on the MindPod network, which is uh, with, with the love server member foundation. However, I think that they would be very open to, it doesn't have to all be uh, love and light and and thumbs up towards. Well,
2: well, well, well we're not going to get to love and light if we don't tell the truth. And that's right. You know, I mean, what Ram Dass did. Uh, I flew to Maui not knowing, uh, and there was a document that I had to sign at the beginning that the the material had to be permissioned later. So we had that hanging over our heads and. And he, we spent a few days together, Uh, we have so much footage, and he was just very deeply honest. And uh, we did a lot of work in the second day, which felt more like of a healing nature, Mm. because his experience with Bhagavan was similar to my experience of the love connection that inspired an uncommon bond. Mm. We had that shared experience of being like cracked open by shams or something, uh, and not knowing what to do with what was left of it. And uh, but he really, uh, I love that. I love that time with him and I love the directness and the honesty of it. And it felt like it was like one of the only people I interviewed in that, uh, whole community who was willing to tell the absolute truth.
1: Oh, that's beautiful. And I know otherwise though, in the film itself, I mean, it was a very trying time for you. Uh, you know, I'm thinking of the, <laughs> the, uh, cathartic baseball bat scene where you were just letting out all your frustration on a picture of Bhagavan and, uh. I mean, it really doesn't shine a, a positive light on him. I don't want to make this a, a trash-talking thing about him, but that is a big part of your journey, um, you know, as documented. So it's the film's been out for, when did it come out? 2010, 2010?
2: It went to festival in 12 or 13, okay. not that long ago. Maybe it went to festival sure. in 12. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. It's,
1: been, it's been some years. Do you know if Bhagavan has seen it, or have you had any communication with him since?
2: Uh, We certainly had some communication after the film Uh, first came out uh, through his partner who was writing uh, for him. And, um, yeah, there were a lot of things that were said and a lot of perspectives that were communicated that were not congruent with my perspective. Um, But uh, because of uh, the insurance issues around films like this, there's not a lot more I can say. Sure.
1: But but it is safe to say there wasn't. He's
2: seen seen it and Mm -hmm. he doesn't really feel like it's a reflection of who he is now, and that may be absolutely true. I have sure. nothing to say about that, and I'm always open to that possibility. Um, you know, I don't feel as though the film trashed him. I feel as yep. though the film explored my ex- journey very honestly. And, uh, you know, a lot of things came out of his mouth that did probably not make him look very good in the eyes of the world. Um, but I think it explored the question in the most uncomfortable and genuine way possible because it is complicated where these projections come from and why we choose who we choose. And ultimately the question I ask in the film, I think is the right one, which is like, forget Bhagavan for a minute or forget whoever it is for a minute. You know, who is this in me and, 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 and how did, why did I manifest this? Somebody else wouldn't have had that experience. And I had to ask the question why I did. And, um, yeah.
1: Well, and I, and I appreciate that. Um, and thank you for sharing what you could about it. I, I guess just to close out that part of the conversation, it's safe to say that since then there's not been any actual reconciliation per se with you two. It's just it is what it is. And um,
2: The last time I saw Bhagavan, I drove him to Toronto International Airport. Um, he said some remarkably radical things in the car, the likes of which I'm still recovering from. Uh, I brought him into the airport with his bags. I remember this moment very well because Margaret Atwood was standing in the airport. It was me and Bhagavan Doss and Margaret Atwood, the famous Canadian writer. And I thought, wow, this is an archetypal moment. Um, and then, um, I gave him, I think a hundred bucks for his bags to fly off and he flew off to Pennsylvania and and that was that. We Absolutely. haven't had any direct contact since, other than that series of emails.
1: Gotcha. Well, I am glad that uh, towards the end, it, it shared uh, you shared how it kind of brought you back to your father, and uh, and you had a bit of what seemed from the film some healing in that area. So, um, you know, <laughs> shitty experiences on the spiritual path, but what we do with them and what they teach us. So, I, I was really happy to see that that you know that that happened for you. So.
2: It, it was an essential uh, an experience on my clarification of what spirituality means process. Mm. It was absolutely uncomfortable, so what? I mean, I right. can handle discomfort. Yeah. I'm quite used to it. You are. We know about this is what it is to transform in yeah. a real way. And nothing has shed a, a more clarified light on what it means to be spiritual and what it means to be a bypasser than really that experience. So. Yeah i'm I'm truly I'm grateful for it and and I had fun with him, you know Bugavon's a character in a lot of different directions. I had more fun with him. we had the funnest dinners, we had great walks and talks yeah uh it's something to have him in your house, but it's, <laughs> i you know, we people come, there's people camping out on the front lawn. It's a trip, really. Right. You have to have the trip. Yeah. I always say, whatever you do, go see Bhagavad Gita as part of your spiritual awakening process. Maybe just don't hug him at the end because that could, could years ago, might have led in certain directions. Sure. But you've got to have a taste of the Bhagavan experience. Yeah. Because he's, he's something.
1: He is yeah. something. Well... So thanks for sharing what you could about it. I appreciate that. But now so so let's talk about as we're moving into to spirituality. Um let's talk about your new book, Spiritual Graffiti, or your newest book. It's not brand new, but um I'm a huge fan of this. I'm a huge fan of you as a writer in general, but this book um spoke very deeply to me, resonated very deeply. And there's a number of topics from it and uh excerpts that I want to share with our audience. So let's start right in the beginning. The introduction, uh, you title, A Call to Authenticity. And you start by addressing the word spiritual. So I'm going to share the first excerpt, and then we'll just jump in from there. So you write, Although I use the word spiritual in the title, make no mistake as to my meaning. By spiritual, I do not mean anything that is exclusively transcendent, etheric, or blissful. I don't mean anything steeped in artificial forgiveness, wishful thinking, radical detachment, ego bashing and you go on but i think that's a a good summarization so so what is spiritual what is spirituality
2: you know i i (laughs) for me it just means reality um so for me and that's what my journey has taught me that that the when i'm holding more elements or threads of reality in my consciousness at one time i feel like i'm having a more completely spiritual experience and when i was perfecting or over-developing de- singular threads of consciousness, master witness or master minute, whatever it was, I felt as though I was um, not having a truly spiritual experience. So the dude in the truck beside me driving his truck is often, in my view, ha- in a more spiritual energy than uh, many of the people who are calling themselves spiritual teachers because they have, you know, there was that saying as a child, as a, as a guy that was really landed for me, which was, you know, somebody would ask me what I like to do and I would name a bunch of things and somebody would say, well, you're a jack of all trades, master of none. And I remember feeling so um, annoyed by that because I felt like, oh God, I got to be a master in something. I am a man. I've got to be a master of something. And every time I would master something, whatever it was, I felt as though I was splitting off from an inclusive experience of the everything else. Um, so for me, spirituality just means reality. Um mm-hmm. And so you know, yeah, and and you know, so and I I get that teachers perfect threads, and I get that they're travel agents for the particular trip that may or may not work for them, and I get that we sit before them because we need a little taste of that thread. Sure. But then sure. I also understand we have to step back from that at some point and reclaim everything else that's been lost.
1: Right. And so you're talking about spiritual teachers, and and not just teachers, but practitioners too, of course. That yeah. Um, in a way, have, have lost touch maybe with. Um,
2: the wholeness of the ex- yeah. Uh, human experience. Yeah,
1: I think that's a perfect way of summarizing it. And, and that leads into another section, uh, and I believe this again was from the introduction, and I really love this. You call it the New Cage Movement, a play on words of the New Age Movement, of course. Um, and another excerpt to elaborate a bit on that was, you write, What I once honored as a New Age for humanity I now refer to as the New Cage Movement. As I witness seekers fleeing their humanness and opportunities for deeper transformation in droves, I use this term to describe the ungrounded, dangerous and simplistic elements of the New Age movement. So I mean, we've, we, you and I've talked about this before, and I'm sure you've talked to others, I've talked to others. It, spirituality is a very big business, very, very big. And I you know I write candidly about it in my books and how it's very disheartening. To me to see what's become of it in a lot of areas. Um and it's a not not a popular sentiment for for people to speak out against that, to rock the boat, you know, because it's it's death to your career in in, in a certain way, or that's the way it's viewed. But, you know, more and more people are starting to step up and and I think you and I are, are amongst them. So let's talk about this new cage movement and the ramifications, let's... repercussions it's having. Any, any direction you want to go with it?
2: Well, you know, there's a lot of directions we, we should yeah. go because yeah. it's an important conversation. Agreed. I mean, first of all, you know, what the soul liberty movement calls spirituality, mm-hmm. again, is not anything to do with spirituality. They're just selling um, Band-Aids and bubblegum to people who are often deep and serious trauma survivors. Sure. Um, This is no game. It's obviously big business. Uh, Pseudo-non-duality is a very easy sell to people. You tell them they're going to enter a unified field without having to do any work while dismissing their self-identifications, unresolved emotional bodies, physical bodies, egoic structure, all of these fundamental aspects of the human experience. Basically, you're telling them that God made a mistake by putting them in human form, and you're going to take them to some emptiness, unified experience that's called the true spiritual field. Um, That's an easy sell. You know, it's a much harder sell to craft a model of spirituality that weaves together all the uncomfortable work we have to do to transform in the emotional body as well. Right. Um, It's huge business. It's a giant industry. It's uh, artificial forgiveness makes people millions, you know, and there and, but my view is that it's killing people. Um, I I don't think this is a game. I I had a, a, a connection on Facebook with someone who had really bought into New Cage and, and pseudo-non-duality and all kinds of spiritual bypass nonsense and and idiotic people being called thought leaders and, oh, my God, who on earth is spewing this nonsense? And she bought into it and really let go of her connection to the psychotherapeutic work that was keeping her alive and then ultimately, after threatening for a while, hung herself in her apartment. Um, right. And I, I, that then I stopped. I stopped my own quest for celebrity. I stopped, stopped my own quest to be on Super Soul Sunday, I stopped with my own desire to be published by other publishers. I really decided that I was for the people and not the profession, which was probably always my grassroots intention, but I had to get sucked in a little like a lot of us have to get sucked into it, Um, and it's complicated, and I know all of that, but I think that really we have to understand and appreciate if any spiritual teacher or practitioner tries to lead people away from their unresolved pain body material and calls that spirituality that they are destructive forces of nature um, because that material is the exact material that's going to turn into cancer and kill them that's the material that's going to depress their emotional system that's the material that's going to lead to them suiciding and ruining their lives so uh, it's absolutely essential that we stand down on grounded spirituality we stand down the market placing of spirituality And that we stop calling it spirituality and call it out as the big lie that it is. You know, at the end of the day, Chris, after all the debates are done, we're going to be talking about what is an inclusive consciousness. Mm -hmm. What What is consciousness? What is spirituality? And, you know, one of the primary ways this is prevented is you and I feel anxiety that we should dare to call it out. Nowhere else in my life do I have a problem speaking my opinion. <laughs> right. but somehow in the spiritual field, if I say he's a liar, he's disembodied, he's dissociative, but he's pretending he's enlightened, all of a sudden everybody's afraid their career is ruined. Nobody's going to buy their books anymore. Nobody's right. going to publish them anymore. I don't think so. I think we have to just give up on that, let go of that. And My experience was my fan page was, I, was around 30,000 people in March of 2013 because I was being careful. Then that woman killed herself and I just started to call out the new cage movement and my page has grown 100,000 people a year since. And that's because humanity is so tired of these bullshit versions of spirituality. that are not leading them in any direction that heals them, transforms them, the, you know, the law of attraction nonsense, all other – so many versions of sure. pseudo non-duality. And really if we're going to serve humanity – if you're in it for egoic or financial concerns, go play the stupid industry game. But if you're in it because you have a sacred purpose to bring this offering to the world and expressing it brings you into being and helps humanity, you have to really constantly come back to the question of what am I really saying and why am I saying it and where is this landing for day-to-day people who are driving in their car listening to an audio tape? Is this serving them moving forward? Yeah. Um and then if you ask that question, you've really got to stop presenting superficial versions of spirituality.
1: Mm. Well, thank you for stepping up and saying what you're saying. Um, thank I you.
2: Thank you for doing the same.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I fortunately have not had anyone who took their life um, as a result of stepping you know, into the new cage movement. I've known many people that have died uh, as a result of addictions and other various causes, and that's heartbreaking, of course. Um, but I share that because for me, finding what I would consider a pretty honest, authentic spiritual path, one that does the emotional work, that really does the uncomfortable, dirty, you know, c- the cleanup that we don't want to do because it's not pleasant, that is what has saved my life. And it's not that my life has become perfect by any means because right. I still fall and I am human, you know, I, I but I've learned through these various traditions and practices and what not to pick myself back up to clean up the areas that we're hiding, you know, and then that will spill out in all of their ugliness. But I have a way of living a, a little more skillfully today than I did several years ago, where I was just drinking it away and using drugs to mask all of it. Um, and so for me, spirituality is a very sacred, not to you know be cliche, but it is a very sacred thing to me. And when I see the business end of it, which you know, the marketing and it's very tough for me. You know, it's, it's a good practice to have peace and compassion in your hearts for others. And, and, uh,
2: if if it's organic, it's fantastic.
1: Yes. If it's organic, right. Not forced. Like I know you talk about forced forgiveness, but it it is hard when I see what's happening today, you know, to something that is so dear to my heart and not just today, because this has been going on for, for many years now. Um, but I speak, I've spoken at some bigger conferences, which still baffles me. Um, because I, you know, I say what I say. I'm grateful for the opportunity. I always give 110%. But what's rubbed me the wrong way is a lot of the time when I am backstage or you know with some of the other big presenters, overhearing some of the conversations. You know, and they're not talking about what I wish I had heard them talking about, but rather book sales or how much I'm getting paid for this or marketing plans. And it's like, ah uh,
2: You know, Chris, for me, and I've had a number of ridiculous experiences with well-known people in the field, and I'm sure you have as well. And it really comes down to, for me, as to what's motivating somebody to do this work. If you're doing it for financial or egoic reasons, it's a business. And that doesn't mean you don't have something to offer as part of your business structure, but it means you're not really going to be caring that much about your impact on humanity. And
0: if you're motivated
2: by what I call sacred purpose, a deep, and true calling that just won't stop until you honor it you're probably not you may get hooked in a little bit but you're probably going to be asking a different question which is is my message true and how have I benefited humanity and you know to me it's just moving in the direction of benevolence in our relationship to money which I think is the next step for humanity um but you know I I I think my feeling is I like to avoid most of that and just keep going back to the people I yes. care about. The people and I don't care that much about the profession, except those members of the profession that I feel are acting in integrity. And in my experience, that's somewhere between three and five percent of them.
1: Wow. Yeah. And I, I those are my
2: numbers. Those are my numbers. Right. They may not be your
1: numbers. Right? No, I was going to say, I, you know, I, I wouldn't, for a second, start to disagree with that. Uh, it is a, a rarer uh, thing to find. Authenticity. And I, I know neither one of us, just to be clear, are trying to speak out like we're better than anyone else. Uh, and I, I just want to be clear that that's not the case. But sometimes you have to call a spade a spade, you know? And, and I think that's
2: what's. I don't happening. know about better. I don't, I mean, I, I don't, uh, I, I've struggled with these questions and I, I don't feel like some perfected, realized master of right. anything. I don't even believe they exist. Um, sure. But I do think that where I feel like I'm mostly moving from is the healthier place to move from right. in relation to this work. And I don't have a problem saying that.
1: Yes, no, and I appreciate that, yeah. which I think is a great segue into another expert and topic uh, that I wanted to share that you talk about in spiritual graffiti, which is spiritual bypassing. You know, and that's something that is quite commonly or becoming more commonly talked about today. And, you know, as I'm thinking about, your friend who took her life it as you're saying that it reminded me of a conversation i had a few months ago with someone and we were talking about the big business of spirituality and they said well what do you care you know who knows it gets their foot in the door and then they can find their way but it, for so no. many people no. No. It, no they get their foot in the door and they stay exactly where they are because it, it's comfortable
2: it, it, yeah and they actually start getting in their own way no this is simply right not true. I mean, at this stage of human development, you know, it's all most people that I know can do to manage and name their own material. They can be easily misled, easily hooked into the wrong in the wrong direction, right. easily sold a karmic bill of goods, and they will buy it in the desperate hope that they can find some relief for their suffering. Yeah. So uh, I don't believe that the seeker is the only one responsible on the path. I believe the practitioner and the teacher is deeply responsible yeah. and holds a, a very profound responsibility and needs to be accountable on every single level. And Ram Dass said that in the film, he said you have to be able to justify your actions on every plane of awareness. And I think that's one of the most important things I've ever heard in the spiritual world. You have to be able to justify yourself on every plane of awareness. Yeah. And, uh, yeah.
1: Yeah. I appreciate that. Um,
2: Because people are dying, and uh, absolutely, and and as Andrew Harvey says, the world is burning. This is no game. Yeah, yeah.
1: So, well, an excerpt, another excerpt that that I wanted to share while we're you know talking about spiritual bypassing, uh, is you write: "The real dawning of a new age for humanity requires that we let go of the ungrounded notion that real spirituality exists independent of our human experience. This is the big lie." perpetuated by masters of self-avoidance, masquerading as enlightened masters. Yes, we are spiritual beings having a a human experience, but we are also human beings having a human experience. They are one in the same. So I know we've already talked a bit about this. Um, So let's say then, for, for the audience, what are ways to recognize that we might be spiritual bypassing? And how do we get out of that?
2: Um, w- there's so many ways. We One may be that we are convinced that we're in a spiritual field that's resolved and worked through and even enlightened. Mm. And yet we're continually acting out in our uh, day-to-day lives emotionally. Mm. Um, uh, we're appearing to be one thing before our students, and we're completely insane in our relationship <laughs> life. Just simply put, yes, we have hidden addictions while we're letting the world know that we've reached the stage where we're far beyond that. I mean, this is I encounter that many times in my 30s with people in the spiritual world. Um, you know, so for me, the information always comes from my emotional body on the simplest level. Um, and uh, yeah,
1: yeah, Yeah. well, yeah, I I, I think that's well said.
2: Um, there's just no integration, and uh, if there's no integration, then something's not. The truth, Um, and you know, the more work I do in that terrain, the more I find myself able to find congruency between those two ways of being. Let me go back. You said you read my quote. The one word was wrong. You said uh, we're spiritual beings having human experience, and we're human beings having a spiritual experience. You said human and human. I just want to say that. Oh, I apologize. All I'm saying is, I mean, I just don't really understand the difference between the two. Um, And I'm I'm curious with you because you've been around this for so long is there some way in which you do see a difference between the two that, that I maybe am not seeing
1: between the spiritual experience as, as a you human an experience? A, uh, no. You know. So for me, no, what, what, what I've come to at least today, as far as my own experience of spirituality is what I really appreciate how Matthew Fox will talk about panentheism, that of being the divine in all things and all things in the divine. And that's, from my own experience, my own glimpses, you know, of course, I never for a second tried to claim anything other than some experiences I'm grateful for that have given me a taste of what it is that, uh, that I know is beyond just my human self, but while embracing that my human self is a part of that at the same time. So that's my experience of it today. Who knows what tomorrow will bring, you know, but that's where Got I'm it. at with it, so...
2: You know, I just wanted to say, one of you know, you hear the various stories, Gaffney and Bhagavan, and there's all, sure. all these stories. And, you know, I was thinking, I was talking to Andrew Harvey about this, and, and for me, really, at the heart of it is this split. Because, you know, if, if we're – I get that the teacher wants to present that their behavior is just their human personality patterning, but that's not who they really are, Trip. Mm-hmm. And so that's splitting, that who they really are is the spiritual truth and their behavior is not their spiritual uh, truth, that splitting and bifurcation lives at the heart of all the abuses out there. So if, if anyone's acting out, they can get away with it because they can forever claim, as gurus often have, that that behavior has nothing to do with their spiritual teachings or what they're here to offer you. Sure. I, now that's obvious on some level, but I guess the real challenge is for the seeker the reason why people don't embrace this on the seeking level, because if the seekers all got that, they wouldn't be sitting before people who they didn't find trustworthy. Mm-hmm. But I get that the challenge is the seeker wants to hold on to the bifurcation or splitting between humanist and spirituality because it allows them to not have to attend to their human material also. Sure. And I think until we really address what it is that's bringing the seeker into the room, none of the misbehaving is going to stop. And when we do address what's bringing them into the room and where the projection and the bifurcation is coming from, then all of the abuses are going to stop.
1: Yeah. And like you said, going back to doing the work, the emotional work, the healing work, the cleaning up work that we need to do. And if you're in the role of a teacher, being transparent in that role, you know, uh, instead of showing one thing. And being another, which you already said, you know, saying I've got it, this healed or this figured out. However, no, you don't. Behind closed doors, no, you don't. Um, and right. I think that's very dangerous right. because it's setting unrealistic um, goals or images for people on the path to try and attain. And, you know, I know that in, in my early stages, that was something I struggled from. Um, you know, I, first I got steeped into the spiritual materialism. And and that's, you know, most of us do. It's part of the yeah. process. I got the malas and, you know, the clothes and, and learned the language. And, but then you start to grow out of that, hopefully. Uh, but then it was, you know, I'm, I am putting teachers now at this point on pedestals and trying to live up to this image I have of them. And if I'm not, then I'm judging myself for not being spiritual enough, failing, at you know, this or that. And it's not realistic, you know, and and. Thank God that I've come to understand that today. It doesn't mean that that is an excuse that I can just go out and do whatever I want. It's that in my humanness, I am human. I am growing. I am learning. I am a mess at times. Not not in a way that's you know like killing anyone or, or any horrible thing in, in the world. But that's part of this experience, and that's why it's so important for me to be transparent and clear in in my writing or workshops that. You know, I've written a couple of books. I'm grateful for that. But so what? Here's some things that have helped me and I have come a long way from where I was, but I still fuck up triumphantly at times, you know, and yeah, so it's but it's like today though, I can recognize when that's happening a lot quicker than I used to. And I also can work with it and it becomes, as Ram would say, grist for the mill of my path, you know, and and it really does.
2: Well, I mean, it's true, but, you know, Ram Dass and I have had conversations where working through the emotional body, my focus on that as part of what is intrinsic to spiritual transformation, he referred to as neurotic. Mm. He said, better you have a car accident or a stroke. And I said, why don't you work your mother material? It's not that complicated. (laughs) Why do you have to have that happen to you? You've already got enough material to work with. You know, I mean, I think that the clearing piece is important, but I, I don't want to give the impression for listeners that are really starting on the journey, that, that you're clearing the emotional material in order to get to the spiritual experience. For me, the clearing and transformation of the emotional material is what grew me in the direction of being able to hold a spiritual container. Right. So for me, the maturation in the emotional material and the maturation in the spiritual field were synonymous essentially. Um, So if I could clear and work through an abandonment uh, patterning, a deep wound that was obstructing my capacity to relate in relationship to the extent that I could hold the space for that wound more deeply and let it shift out of itself in a softer or more balanced direction – I felt myself become a more mature being who could hold the space for the everything. So I wasn't trying to get it out of the way. Right. I was trying to work the material to become a different person.
1: Yes, absolutely. The growth, the healing. It's, it's... There it
2: is. I don't know where else to grow. I, I never grew by detaching. It gave me right. a perspective. But then I had to come back down into what? Into this human form, which was not an accident, into my human story and not turn my story around, but work in the heart of my story right. in order to transform in the direction of holding the space for reality
1: yeah i wish i knew this verbatim because i i read it several months ago and i I actually laughed out loud and it was uh like a little cartoon uh among two monks talking or a monk and a novice and you know the monk was talking about the transcendence of non-duality and and uh the the senior monk like slapped him in the face and he's like, well, did you feel that? And he's like, yeah, you know, and it was just like, come on, you know, like let's be real here.
2: Ryan Mountain Dreamer says, how's that working for you? Yeah, Yeah, right, right. I mean, I mean, all these so-called suit. I mean, you can't have non-duality if you remove the emotional body, the ego, the body, personal identifications, unresolved issues from the field of your experience. There's nothing unified about that. That's a completely fragmented consciousness calling itself unified. Yes. Uh, your best shot at coming to something called non-duality is working through the material so that you come into a genuine, sustainable integration and experience of unity consciousness coming from your feet upwards. And I don't even know ab- about upwards. I call that book Ascending with Both Feet on the Ground. I'm not even sure I think ascending is the answer. I think that's also leading us in the wrong direction because I think it's all happening horizontally in a relation to the earth. So I'm going to relanguage that, I think. I almost want to retitle that book. but. Mm. You know, but I'm absolutely certain that what it has to happen in the bones of your being in order to come to a place of unity that's genuine.
1: Yeah, very well said. And you know, just,
2: presence, presence is a whole being experience, or it's nothing at all.
1: Absolutely, all of it. Yeah, very important. So the book again that we've been talking about for the just for the audience, it's spiritual graffiti, which it was uh, available at your website on Amazon. Um, I cannot recommend it enough. It's definitely one of the best books i read uh in in quite a while i'm a big fan of it uh thank you for asking me to write some nice words on on behalf of it i was honored to do so um one thing i wanted to make sure we talked about we have about 10 minutes or so left here was your you so we talked a little bit about how you're done playing the game and and you know trying to make a name and and this and that and i very much respect that you really embody what you say, though. I mean, it's easy to talk the talk, but you really sincerely walk the walk. And you went so far as to start your own publishing company that's called Enrealment Press. And I can't tell you how deeply I really honestly respect that. I mean, that that takes balls. I know that you... Um, had talked with other publishers, well-known and respected publishers about putting your work out. But that's the integrity you know, that you have is that with that option there, no, you're going to start your own thing and move from there. So I would love to talk a bit about, before we wrap up, Enrealment Press. and.
2: Yeah. I mean, I had to make the decision in the beginning. I wrote Soul Shaping and I knew nothing about publishing. And I sent it to Namaste, who had formed uh, to publish Eckhart's book, Power of Now. Right. They cut it in half and sent me back an offer. And I spent the summer deciding not to take the offer because I didn't like the word limitations in the contract. Mm-hmm. And I mean, when I decided to leave law, I already made the decision to not leave the game and the economic benefit of the game. I'd already gone through this process sure. internally. So, uh, and then I self published the book and had it sold on the streets by a homeless guy. And then I brought it into the world with North Atlantic. And North Atlantic was a fine experience in many ways, but really for me, it just stopped making sense. I don't like chasing the system. I don't like chasing publishers. I don't like the way a lot of the industry was set up, you know, in the traditional way it's been set up where they're always being chased and they're always in position of power. And this is my calling. And, you know, if the people don't want to buy my calling, they're not going to buy my calling, but I'm not going to grovel before an industry to bring my work to the world. Um, And now because of social media and Amazon and all kinds of things, you don't need to. You can Mm. go, build a following, and if the people like you, they'll buy your work, and they don't care who published your work on Amazon. They're right. going to buy your work, and, and you'll make an amount of money that's congruent with what you, the effort you've put into it, which for a lot of us is. And you have, more importantly for me, the literary freedom to do things on your own terms. Yeah. Um, and I was an entrepreneur for years. I ran a window company, and so I I like publishing. I, I I find it fun, and to create my own work. We I've got two beautiful books, Edge of Wonder and My partner Susan's poetry hope is a traveler. We just signed a deal with Andrew Harvey to bring one of his books into the world, and uh, I find it exciting. And as long as I stay consistent with the enrealment principles, which I'm determined to, um, it's just a fun way to bring my work into the world and to not have to delay on it. So if I like, I wrote an uncommon bond, and we felt it was pretty much finished in April or March, so I could then get it into the system immediately rather than waiting twelve to eighteen months. Right. because I believe that book has been helping a lot of people and that I believed it would help a lot of people, I didn't feel I had a right to wait on anybody. Um, yeah. Just get it into the world as reasonably quickly as possible. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I love that. And, and that was something I didn't realize, you know, when I stepped into my first book, the 12 to 18 month window, as most new authors that I talk to that go the traditional route yeah. don't. Um, so that's great that you didn't do that. And often people will ask me, you know, which way should I go, traditional or self? And honestly, it it depends on what you're looking to do, but I often will tell, suggest people go self, you know, go self, but you're, as you mentioned, you started out with your own books, but now you're publishing a few other people. Yeah. So, for the audience, if there are any authors or writers out there, yeah. do you you accept yeah. um, submissions?
2: We look at, at anything. Absolutely, we look at anything. Great, and, and what's, there's a, a yeah. little philosophy there that they want to make sure they're. I'm not going to publish any bypass manuals. Of obviously. course, yeah. Yeah, so it has to be integrated and inclusive and heart-centered and grounded and all the rest of that, and and we're then we're absolutely delighted. So look, I have New Leaf as my distributor in the U.S. We've just signed a, a secondary deal to have distribution in Europe and Scandinavia and other areas, and you know we're we're continuing to expand readily. And I, because of my Facebook following, I mean people need to understand the nature of publishing nowadays. There there are advantages to getting into the system. I needed to get into the system with with Soul Shaping. Uh, but you know, a lot of times publishers after printing the book don't do a lot.
1: Right. Yeah.
2: And they send you a little note that says, build your social media following and promote the book for us. Now I get why they're doing it. they they feel they can't afford to put money into advertising, but I spent about 15 grand on a publicist for soul shaping. And my first royalty check was like a grand or two. So I learned my lesson pretty quickly. Um, and if I'd owned the rights to that book, those sales would have led to my covering the cost of that publicist. Mm. Um, so you know you you yeah you, you got to be sensible about it and and if at some point when I saw my following growing it was like why am I going into the system I've already put all this work into building my support base they're supporting me with my work they're buying my books and downloads and so let's just. Do it all that way, and it is the new paradigm, and it makes you wonder what's going to happen to traditional publishing over time. Because ultimately, if they keep saying, you're going to publish the book for us by building a social media following, people are all going to ask the question, well, what do I need you for?
1: Right. Yeah. Very good question to be asked.
2: I mean, sure, your book gets into some bookstores, but you know, in the new bookstore world, if it doesn't sell within three or four weeks, it gets sent back anyway. So right. the ego wants to be in the bookstore, but I'm more interested in selling my product and yeah. getting it to more people. And uh, I've learned that you can there's a lot of ways to do that.
1: Now. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so what uh, what's the website that people can go to to check out Enrealment Press as well as your own website, or are they interlinked?
2: Oh, you know, yeah, Enrealment.com is the site. Uh, my primary website is soulshaping.com, and then I also have soulshapinginstitute.com for some of my coursework.
1: Wonderful. Which, yes, you, you offer courses. I know we didn't really have a chance to get into that, but um, you know I've had the privilege of looking through one, and it was uh, top-notch, really wonderful material you offer. So, I mean, we've got like two minutes left. Is there, I mean, I know we covered a lot of ground, but is there anything enclosed that we didn't cover that you would like to address or leave people with?
2: Um, we didn't talk about an uncommon bond, which I'm so delighted with, which really uh, puts forth the idea of the importance of horizontal models. And I I really think the next step in spirituality for all of us to start talking about are not these isolated experiences of what I would call vertical spirituality, but to really start talking about what comes up in the relational field mm. um, as the gateway to the God experience. Uh, mm. Because I ultimately feel as though... It's a richer and more brilliantly colorful and textured experience of unity, a more inclusive experience. But I also feel like moving in that direction is ultimately the only thing that's going to save this planet. If we keep thinking that everything's going to happen alone on the cushion with me, dude, and God, (laughs) I'm never going to really care about my effects on anything outside of myself. And. You know, it's the idea that we're not just here together to keep each other company. We're here together to show each other God. And I think we need to find a way to bring that into the development of spiritual models that are not just about, you know, I get Ken did great work and Wilbur brought all of that stuff together, but a lot of those are just vertical isolationist models. And I'm really interested in the next step in developing horizontal frameworks. Mm-hmm. Um, really congruent with the wisdom of the Divine Feminine about what happens through the heart and what how that affects our experience of unity and the non-dual field. I think that's really our only hope.
1: Wow. Well, thank you, Jeff, very much for your time. I really appreciate it. I, I'm very, uh, very grateful for what you're doing in the world, not just with your writing, but stepping up and, and doing what you're doing, saying what you're saying. Uh, I deeply honor and respect that. Um, Psyched to have had this conversation with you. I look forward to doing it again. Um, the website, soulshaping.com, correct? And you can find Jeff's books, the Carmageddon DVD. Um, they can also see your, your various courses that you have there. Uh, a whole plethora of goodies. So please check that out. And we will have that website linked. So you can just easily click on the link if you're watching or listening to this. Jeff, it's been a pleasure. Um, I thank you very much for your time.
2: Thanks, Chris. I appreciate it.